Giuseppe Verdi is one of the great operatic innovators of the 19th century, credited with leading singers into new, more dramatic territory. Which singers would you rank amongst the greatest Verdi all-star interpreters? This is the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. This past season, Met broadcast commentator Ira Siff delighted New York audiences with his colorful survey of great Verdi singers of the past and present. Today's episode is the first of a three-part series from Ira's Verdi All-Stars course, discussing performances by Marissa Galvani, Luciano Pavarotti, Renata Scotto, Placido Domingo, and other legendary stars. Thank you for coming. It's nice to see so many of you, uh, and so many of you again from last year. Uh, the operas of Verdi have been a part of the Met since its season, first season, 1883-84, when the big three were presented, Rigoletto, Trovatore, and Traviata. And it's amazing for us to realize today that when the house opened, these operas were only about 30 years old. Otello and Falstaff hadn't even been written yet. Uh, all kinds of singers sang Verdi's works at that time. The Verdi singer, as it's now called, was something being formulated and codified, but was not as yet really an official category. When the Met Guild asked me to look into uh, Verdi All-Stars, dividing the examination into three parts, early, middle, and late Verdi operas, I ran into two problems. One was that the middle period, including the aforementioned Big Three, uh, presented too many possibilities to be limited to one session. Uh, the other, a broader problem, was that there had been simply too many, far too many, great Verdi singers in the Met's 134-year uh, career to cover in three 90-minute sessions. So I have decided to focus on certain artists, some because of vocal gifts, some interpretive, some blessed with both at the same time. And my apologies to the great Verdi singers and their fans, who uh, got cut for time. Uh, it's always been my goal also in these sessions to mix the familiar with the less familiar, audio clips with video clips, and pre-electric acoustic recordings of great artists with more contemporary documents. We're going to begin today with some of Verdi's early operas leading up to and including his breakthrough Rigoletto, which signaled a more mature style, more deeply immersed in characterization. Uh, as we're looking only at operas performed at the Met, it's interesting to note that eight of Verdi's 27 operas have still never been presented by the Met. Roberto Giorno di Regno, Idui Foscari, Giovanna d'Arco, Alzira, I Masnadiero, and Masnadieri and Il Corsaro as well as La Battaglia di Legnano have not been seen at the house yet. Now, all, not all of these are masterpieces, but each one contains some remarkable music that's worth hearing. Now, some of Verdi's earlier operas 
came to the Met for the first time under the administration of Rudolf Bing, the general manager who understood their appeal for the public and opportunities for great singing. Nabucco, Verdi's breakthrough hit of 1842, didn't reach the Met till 1960. After the success of Macbeth, which had premiered the previous year, in 1959 only, it seemed a good idea to cast the two triumphant principals, Leonard Warren and Leonie Riesenick, in uh, Nabucco for 1960. Unfortunately, Warren died on stage in 1960, and uh, Riesenick found uh, the role of Abigaile, and although a great artist, very great artist, she found the role really incongenial, overly strenuous, and it resulted in a vocal crisis that lasted a few years. So for our Nabucco All-Star, we're going across the plaza to a Met artist who sang the treacherous role of Abigaile in Nabucco at City Opera many, many times, achieving for that and her many other New York City Opera performances the status of cult diva extraordinaire. Now, there was a time that lunatics like me snuck our cumbersome large plastic tape recorders I'm talking reels of tape before cassettes were invented, into the Met to record the likes of Kalas, Milanov, Scotto. I would hide it in a big briefcase, and I would hang the mic over the standing room rail in the family circle. My passion was matched only by my nerve. <laughs> Even crazier than I was my friend Lou Stewart. When home video cameras came out, Lou began to bring this huge, cumbersome thing somehow into the Met, New York City Opera, Carnegie Hall, with a battery pack strapped to his leg. <laughs> he would change batteries in the men's room during the intermission. Thanks to Lou, we have our first clip today from Nabucco. Marisa Galvani was a formidable diva with an exceptional voice, particularly suited to the outrageous demands of early Verdi soprano roles. Range, volume, flexibility, high notes, chest voice, you name it, she had it in spades. Galvani uh, still is a presence to reckon with at 80. I saw her in Durham, North Carolina not long ago. Uh, she made her Met debut in 1979. She replaced Shirley Verrett on four hours' notice with no rehearsal as Norma. But it was at City Opera that she made her mark. And we're going to watch her in two excerpts that Lou taped from the audience with a handheld camera in 1981. First, Abigail's death-defying recitative aria and cabaletta as she discovers that she is not really Nabucco's daughter, but an adopted slave. And then in the aria recalls tenderly how uh, there was a time that she was able to feel love and compassion. And then for saving time, we'll jump to the cabaletta in which she decides to usurp Nabucco's crown and his throne. Uh, then we're going to go immediately to a clip. I wish we had time for this entire duet. It's a clip of her subsequent duet with Nabucco in which he pleads with her for the life of his real daughter, Fenena. Uh, she says no. Galvani is ablaze in these excerpts. And at the end of the duet, as if the music that Verdi composed weren't difficult enough, she interpolates a high E flat because she can. <laughs> <laughs> 
So here is our first Verdi all-star, Marisa Galvani, in two excerpts from Verdi's Nabucco.
it used to be said only half-jokingly that Verdi had to marry uh, Giuseppina Strapponi because she was the first Abigaile in Nabucco, and because of what it did to her voice, he felt sorry for her and married her later. Uh, and Strapponi did indeed retire from the stage very young and rather voiceless, uh, not long after creating the role of Abigaile at Mascala, but Verdi really loved her, and she was a remarkable person. Roles like Abigaile or Giselda in Verdi's next opera, Il Lombardi, or Odabella in his Attila, uh, the Italian warrior woman, uh, employed vocal resources to the limit and beyond. Odabella was another Galvani specialty at New York City Opera and didn't make it to the Met until 2010. In the meanwhile, Il Lombardi was finally staged at the Met in 1993 as a vehicle for uh, Luciano Pavarotti and Aprile Milo. Milo was the Verdi soprano at the Met for nearly a decade. But the Lombardi production was ill-fated. For the soprano, it marked a vocal crisis brought on by a sinus operation uh, that did some damage to her. And for Pavarotti, the voice was still quite functional, but he could hardly move on stage. The opera's convoluted beyond description plot challenged the director, Mark Lamos, and uh, the entire production was a bit of a flop. However, both Pavarotti and Milo have wonderful histories as great Verdi singers with this opera. Hers with Eve Queller in concert versions here and in Philadelphia, and his in various younger productions and in recital with Maestro Levine. So we're going to still experience these two marvelous Verdi's, uh, Verdians in uh, I Lombardi. First, we're going to see Pavarotti on video pouring forth Aronte's gorgeous aria La Mia Letizia in Fondere with Maestro Levine at the piano rather than on the podium uh, in 1988. And then, uh, audio only, uh, La Milo singing Giselda's ravishing Sevano il Pregare with Maestro Eve Queller conducting. Pavarotti is seen here in ultra-concentration mode, uh, more involved in the vocal line than in the text, practically praying inwardly before an interpolated high B natural. But the sound he produces is something extraordinary. Milo gives an example of Verdi legato cantilena perfection in this live 1986 document, ascending beautifully all the way to a delicate high D-flat piano. Both examples are treasurable models of great lyrical Verdi singing in I Lombardi. Oh, my God. 
Ernani was uh, the opera that Verdi penned directly after Il Lombardi, and it didn't have to wait so long to get to the Met. It had a spotty history beginning back in 1903, then a notable revival uh, for Giovanni Martinelli and Rosa Panzel in 1923, but then vanished until Mr. Bing brought it back in 1956 with Mario Delmonico, Zinka Milanov, Leonard Warren, and Cesare Siepi under Dimitri Metropolis. Such shabby casts in those days. <laughs> for Milanov, it was a late-ish for a taxing Verdi role like El, uh, Elvira, although she, she did go on for another decade after that, doing herself proud-ish. But the <clears throat> Verdi soprano torch was passed on by Zinka quite reluctantly to Leontine Price, who burned it brightly until Milo arrived. Leontine made her debut in the famous uh, 1961 Il Trovatore double debut of her and Franco Corelli, and we're going to hear from them next week uh, in that opera. Um, I'll never forget the power and the richness of her voice in Ernani, soaring up to the heights of the old Met family circle as she poured out uh, Elvira's entrance aria, Ernani in Volami. For Met audiences, Price's sound represented something new, there had been Italian at sopranos in Verdi. There had been Slavic sopranos like Milanov. There had been American sopranos like Eleanor Stieber. There had never been an African-American soprano with that particular sound. Uh, so passionately, soulful, spinning vibrato, soaring slender top notes, slightly husky, gutsy chest voice that, that Price thrilled people in a new way. Uh, I remember one performance of Ernani I went to with my high school friend Bob Misbin, who actually introduced me to opera, and his mother, Miriam Misbin. Now, Miriam was a huge Franco Corelli fan, fanatic. She was madly in lust with Franco, as were many Brooklyn housewives in those days. When the performance was about to begin, and it was announced that Franco was indisposed and had canceled, Miriam Misbin was so despondent she tried to hurl herself off the grand tier of the old man. Fortunately, we were able to restrain her. And uh, Leontine sang so beautifully that night, she managed to calm Miriam a bit with her beautiful voice. Here from an extraordinary Munich concert in 1968 is my personal favorite version of the many we have of Leontine Price uh, essaying Ernani in Volame. Uh, with all these various and sundry leaps to high seas that Verdi created for his Elvira. So here is our Leontine Price.
another component of those Met uh, Hernanis in the 1960s was the young Cornell McNeil. At that point, McNeil was an ideal Verdi baritone, generous of volume, plummy, unforced tone, understanding of style, and a spectacular top. In the third act of Hernani, Verdi gives the uh, character uh, of King Carlo an aria that reflects a change of character from a tyrant to a man of compassion, wanting to honor his position. He reflects upon how his younger days were spent seeking glory, but now he wants to leave a legacy of magnanimity. Verdi transcends himself in this aria with its cello obbligato weaving through it, and McNeil transcends himself. In the house, I never quite heard enough of the interpolated high A flat that he does at the end of the aria because, as you can hear, the audience goes berserk while he's still singing. But on this broadcast, you can hear the note. So this is Cornell McNeil, 1962. As we mentioned, the next four Verdi operas after Anani still haven't gotten to the Met. The fifth to come after Anani was a landmark because it was the first of Verdi's three uh, excursions into operas based on Shakespeare. 
Verdi was an avid Shakespearean. By his bed, the two authors he kept were Shakespeare and Schiller. Uh, and he created a number of operas based on Schiller's stories also. Uh, he read his Shakespeare, of course, in Italian translation. Uh, and he wanted more than anything his entire career to write a King Lear, which never materialized. It evaded him his entire life. But he did write three masterpieces based on the Bard's writing. And his earliest Macbeth took him in a new direction. Uh, although he maintained some of the traditional recitative, aria, cabaletta format of bel canto and his own earlier works, Verdi experimented with atmospheric orchestration, dramatic text setting, to a far greater degree in Macbeth than anything before. Rudolf Bing had big plans for the Met's way overdue, long-awaited 1959 premiere of Verdi's opera. The opera dated from 1847, revised by the composer in 1865, but never seen at the Met. And Bing put together an ideal cast, Leonard Warren in the title role, Maria Callas bringing her celebrated Lady Macbeth from La Scala, Carlo Bergonzi as Macduff, and Jerome Hines as Banquo under Eric Leinsdorf. Of course, Callas was famously fired by Bing when she protested a schedule uh, that involved her leaping, vocally speaking, between Lady Macbeth and Lucia de Lammermoor. Callas famously remarking that the voice is not an elevator that just goes up and down. <laughs> Indeed, Verdi's Lady is again one of those roles that asks everything of the soprano. Fiery, full-throated coloratura, ample high Cs, dark-hued chest tones. Verdi marks his score heavily, even for him, and he was always one who indicated very clearly what he wanted phrase by phrase. Words like cupo covered, sottovoce, half voice, con forza, with force, con dolore, with anguish, as if choking, under her breath, dying away, appear over and over in the score. He famously said that he wanted Lady Macbeth's voice to be hard, stifled, dark, the voice of a devil. He wrote this role that demands a singer's full arsenal of vocal weaponry. And after all, it's about to wind down. At the very end, as she is fading away, haunted by guilt and fear in the sleepwalking scene, he writes her very final phrase to ascend to a high D-flat on a fil di voce, a thread of tone. Thank you, Giuseppe. <laughs> When Callas was replaced in the first Met Macbeths by Lenny Riesenick, Riesenick scored one of the greatest debuts in Met history and became a house favorite for 35 years. We'll be hearing from her in class number three as Desdemona. The second Met production of Macbeth was in 1982. It starred Cheryl Milnes and Renata Scotto. And Scotto refers always to Lady Macbeth as her favorite role. For her, as a Verdian who had been a great Gilda and Violetta, Lady was a huge stretch. But in the sleepwalking scene, Scotto achieved something that Riesenick had as well, which was uh, her ability to in inject frailty and vulnerability into a character that we've despised all evening. And she also managed that high D-flat pianissimo, elusive to so many. Of course, the opera is called Macbeth. <laughs> and the Met's first Macbeth was certainly a Verdi all-star, with 371 performances of 10 Verdi baritone roles at the Met. Interesting to note that Lady Macbeth's unusually free-form sleepwalking scene is a product of the original 1847 version, uh, not the more advanced Verdi of the 1865 uh, revision. So he was already experimenting with form, 
Our next selection is also from the 1847 version, the baritone's great final aria, Pietà, Rispetto, Amore, as Macbeth realizes that the, realizes the poverty of his legacy as a human being. This is Leonard Warren from the Met's 1959 broadcast of Macbeth singing the aria uh, into which he interpolates a questionable in terms of taste but not in terms of excitement, high A-flat. One of the ironies of the music is its nobility, as Macbeth describes the nobility of character, the pity, the respect, the love, which will, he will not be remembered. Warren's plummy, unforced baritone offers us an example of Verdi singing at its absolute finest. Oh. 
Again, the, uh, the four Verdi operas that followed Macbeth have not yet reached the Met, but the fifth Louisa Miller has, and it's coming back, in fact, next season. This is one of the great Verdi father-daughter operas, and the role of Miller is one of the great Verdi baritone roles. Louisa offers the soprano some coloratura singing early on in the opera, but not the fierce kind associated with Nabucco or Attila. Uh, and uh, Louisa is a more gentle uh, character, and even when she's pressed to some powerful outbursts, their root is in vulnerability. The other principal characters include a nasty base, aptly named Worm, <laughs> and a regal duchess who is Louisa's romantic foil and our sort of uh, hero, Rodolfo, who loves Louisa. And so he poses as a peasant to court her, even though he's actually the son of the local count, without thoughts of the possible consequences of all of this. He is, after all, a tenor. And Rodolfo comes from a long line of tenor characters whose music is more beautiful than they deserve. At one point in the uh, convoluted plot, Louisa is forced to write a letter claiming that she loves Worm in order to get her poor father freed from prison. Don't ask. <laughs> Rodolfo is shown the letter, and thinking that Louisa has betrayed him, he does what any tenor would do. He sings a beautiful aria. Placido Domingo is the only Met Verdi baritone who was first a Verdi tenor at the Met. Domingo has sung 166 performances of 11 Verdi tenor roles, and so far about 30 performances of four Verdi baritone roles, not to mention conducting five Verdi operas in the house. In Rodolfo's famous aria, aptly named Quando le Serie al Placido, the Domingo voice, his tenor voice almost uh, always and most often was described as burnished, uh, pours out a stream of intense, firm legato, and this is Placido singing Quando le Serie al Placido.
Another Domingo Verdi role of great interest was that of Stefalio, a Verdi opera that didn't appear at the Met until 1993. Although we don't have time to cover Stefalio today, it's a fascinating work you should look into. The first intimate Verdi opera, giving a taste of where the composer was heading uh, that would lead ultimately to Traviata, his most intimate opera. Verdi remained on that creative track after Stefalio for his next opera, the revolutionary Rigoletto. With Rigoletto, Verdi challenged himself, the censors, and opera as it was normally seen at that point, choosing a Victor Hugo play that had been banned after its opening night about 20 years before as the source, he was asking for trouble. Verdi had the scenario sent to the censors in advance before wasting time working on this project, lest it be prohibited. And prohibited it was. But despite the fact that Verdi and his librettist um, Piave were told by the censors not to appeal their case, Verdi stubbornly pressed on. Piave had to make some serious changes to the plot, uh, particularly to soften some of the amorality of the Duke, and particularly the title character as well, uh, in order to pass muster with the occupying Austrian censors in Venice. By a fortuitous twist of fate, the opera was allowed to proceed only thanks to a decision by a censor who luckily was an opera fan, and specifically a Verdi fan. Uh, the title character is a seemingly vile tool of an entirely amoral duke who rapes women and discards them. The court is seen as entirely corrupt and without conscience. In the end, by overprotecting his daughter, Rigoletto fails to prepare her for the world in which she lives, and she dies sacrificing herself for the duke, whom she loves, although he has raped her. Uh, the opera was a huge hit, both shocking and impressing audiences and critics. But when it was produced all over Italy, in each city, you had to contend with the local censors and their particular bones to pick. And so uh, in various cities, the result was that there were various diluted and distorted versions of Rigoletto. Uh, some were given different titles, and in a few cases Verdi's music was even altered to adjust the particular version or perversion of his opera being performed. My personal favorite is the one in which there's a happy ending <laughs> in which Gilda lives and Rigoletto thanks God for his clemency. With Rigoletto, the greatest example of Verdi's father-daughter operas, he turned musical convention on its ear. The title character has no entrance aria, just sarcastic lines emerging from the crowd of courtiers. Uh, in the second scene, Rigoletto has a free form monologue, Parisiamo, the likes of which Verdi never before composed. Then a duet with his daughter in which his music transforms with tenderness. Once Gilda is abducted and raped, he returns to the court helpless, the victim of the system rather than the henchman of its leader. Here Verdi does something absolutely remarkable. He takes the aria cabaletta form and reverses it. Rigoletto's explosion at the courtiers, Cortigiani Villarazza Danata, is like an energetic cabaletta. The umpas of the past are replaced 
with and ferocious orchestral figures under the vocal line, then the cavatina, the slow, soft part, comes afterwards instead of before, as Rigoletto begs the courtiers to release his daughter to him. Here the composer follows his dramatic instincts rather than the accepted operatic form of the day. Our final selection brings us two great Verdians, uh, another great Rigoletto, we're staying with that opera, Tito Gobi. When Gobi brought his Rigoletto to the Met in 1956, he had been singing the role for nearly 20 years, and he continued to sing at the Met for another 21. He was a consummate artist with a voice of enormous power, not always beautiful, sometimes snarling, sometimes ravishing, always expressive. I think there can be no better ending to today's session than with two extraordinary Verdians who both transcended matters of voice alone to create something that goes beyond mere vocal noise to something that captures Verdi's brilliance entirely on every level. Not that there isn't also great beauty and virtuosity in the singing we're about to hear. We're going to listen to Tito Golbi and Maria Callas in the great Act Two Shena from Rigoletto, the apotheosis of Verdi's father-daughter duets. Callas's heart-rending singing, uh, her reading of, of Gilda's tale of seduction, Gobi's ravishing mezzo voce singing as he consoles his daughter, the energy in their joint cavaletta si vendetta, crowned with Callas's blazing interpolated high E flat, says it all, as does Tullio Serafin's pacing. was Iris Sif talking about Marisa Galvani, Luciano Pavarotti, Renata Scotto, Placido Domingo, Aprile Milo, Leonard Warren, and other legendary stars. 
We'll be back with you next week for another round of Verdi All-Stars. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast.